Welcome you all to Master Plan for Life and 16 and 18. We are ambitiously going to try to get two lessons done tonight, and that's because uh, we had uh, to cancel a number of weeks, and in order to make up a week, we have to combine two at some point. So I've chosen these two because I think they give us the best chance of possibly finishing two in one night. We'll, we'll see. Uh, so thanks for your patience with having to skip around. We did Lesson 17 last week. Now we're going back to Lesson 16 and 18 tonight, <clears throat> and then it'll be all sequential after that. Welcome to those that are on live stream as well. We're on page 149 and Lesson 16, and Lesson 16 is the last lesson in the first part of Master Plan for Life. Part 1, remember, is answering this one question, who am I? And it has the five sections of the doctrine of God, doctrine of the Bible, doctrine of humanity and sin, doctrine of Christ, and the doctrine of salvation. If you look in the upper right-hand corner of page 149, it says the doctrine of salvation. So it's that fifth and final section, and this is the final lesson of that. And it's on the Holy Spirit. And you see at the top of page 149, we say, Lesson 15, discuss three select practical benefits of union with Christ. Now, that's been several weeks, so I remind you that those practical benefits were uh, perseverance, assurance, and sanctification. Perseverance, assurance, and sanctification. And then that next line says, each of those benefits is the result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So it's a good place to follow up discussion of those three things with now a discussion of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the one who provides those benefits. He is, top of page 149, the source of all of the practical benefits of union with Christ. And the perfect of this, uh, purpose of this lesson is to acquaint you with the biblical teaching regarding the Holy Spirit and His ministry and introduce you to further benefits that belong to the believer as a result of His ministry. A large portion of this lesson is devoted to general teaching about the Holy Spirit that lays a foundation for an understanding of the practical benefits that He bestows. So we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the nature of the Holy Spirit and then the work of the Holy Spirit. The nature of the Holy Spirit, there are many misconceptions regarding the Holy Spirit's nature. Some conclude He is simply a force or another term for the power of God. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses would be that. They say that the Holy Spirit is a force rather than a person. And, of course, the Holy Spirit is not God according to according to them. We're going to see that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, God. But they don't believe Jesus is God either. Uh, so they deny the, the triunity, and they deny the divinity, the deity of the Holy Spirit, and they refer to the Holy Spirit as a power or a force, and others do as well, and that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. The Bible presents two very clear truths about the Holy Spirit. First, rather than a force or power, He is a person. And that's taught in a number of ways. One, the Holy Spirit possesses the characteristics of personality. Now, this is going back all the way to Lesson 1. Here we are in Lesson 16. Uh, but Lesson 1, very first lesson, was the, called, the title of the lesson is, The Person We Call God. And that, only had, that lesson only had three major points to it. God exists, uh, God is a person, and God is a triunity, those three things. So if you were to go all the way back to Lesson 1, you would see that second major point that God is a person. And we noted there that personhood has three faculties or characteristics associated with it. 
And we have them here in the middle of page 149. Intelligence, that is the function of the mind. Volition, the, the function of the will. And feelings, the function of the emotions. Mind, will, and emotion. And God has all of those, and the Holy Spirit possesses all three of those as well. You see that, each of those, in the verses that are listed there from John 14, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. So the Holy Spirit is a person because He possesses the traits, the characteristics of personality, mind, will, and emotion. And the Holy Spirit is referred to with personal pronouns, in particular masculine personal pronouns. The Holy Spirit in Scripture is called He and not It. If, if the Holy Spirit were a force or a power, it would be it, would be it correct? But instead, in the Bible, uh, the Holy Spirit is referred to as, as He. But when He, John 16, Jesus is saying this, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into, into all truth. And the Holy Spirit's personality is seen, top of page 150, in the fact that He accomplishes personal work. Jesus told the disciples that He, Christ, would leave, but would send another who would continue His personal ministry to them. John 14, I'll ask the Father and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. And so the Holy Spirit is a person. And secondly, the Holy Spirit is in fact God. As we've seen, the Bible teaches the unfathomable mystery of the triunity of God, one yet three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though these, these three fulfill different functions in the outworking of the plan of God, they are equal in essence and in their attributes. Here's how we know that the Holy Spirit is, is God. One, He is equated with God. Certain patches, passages in the Bible inseparably link the Holy Spirit to both the Father and the Son. You have this benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. That's the last chapter in 2 Corinthians 13, right at the end. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. But most notable is this famous passage in Matthew 28, 19 that we call the Great Commission, where Christ refers to the name of God. And according to Greek grammar, the singular name of God is three things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name, three ways of identifying that name. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you have, you have one being in these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And not only is the Holy Spirit equated with God, He possesses the character qualities or the attributes of God. And those are omnipresence, everywhere at the same time, the power of God, eternality. All of those are seen in the passages that are cited there. And then the Holy Spirit's referred to as God. I made this a point when we were just a couple of weeks ago on Sunday mornings in our worship hour going through the book of Acts. And you see we have Acts chapter 5 listed here. And Peter says to Ananias, when Ananias comes and and hypocritically says he has brought this offering that apparently he had promised to bring, made an arrangement to bring. He didn't have to do, give, give all the money from a sale of property. There was no requirement, but apparently he had said he would, and now he's lying about it. 
And Peter's aware of that. And so Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in the next verse says, you've not lied just to human beings, but to God. Notice now, he's lying to the Holy Spirit, which is the same as lying to God. So he's referred to as God. And likewise in 1 Corinthians 3 and and 6. So that's the nature of the Holy Spirit. It's a person and the Holy Spirit is, is fully God, just as the Father is, just as God the Son is. Now there's the work of the Holy Spirit. And you see the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. We're going to see here in a moment that in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, you don't have a whole lot explicitly said about the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you that last paragraph on page 150, we say the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was not fully developed in the Old Testament. And that's due to the fact that the emphasis of Scripture was on the unity of God in order to counteract the tendency to worship many gods, polytheism. So you guys are familiar, or probably, with the fact that Israel, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, surrounded by these nations, and they're all polytheistic. They all have many gods and goddesses that they, they worship, polytheism, many gods, as opposed to monotheism, one god. And so Israel, in, in contrast to those nations, is monotheistic, and that's why Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 is of such importance in Judaism, in the religion of the, the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And that is called uh, the Hebrew word, the Shema, and Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. So, Hear, O Israel, hear this, and here's, here's the important thing the Lord our God is one, one God, monotheism. And that set them apart from the rest, of, the rest of the nations that were polytheistic. So that was the emphasis in the Old Testament. And there wasn't a whole lot then of clear teaching about this one God being three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You find more of that when you get to the New Testament. But it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit was not active in the Old Testament. Indeed, He was, and indeed you see passages that indicate that He was. Top of page 151 the Holy Spirit was active in creation, second verse of the entire Bible. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the sur surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So the Spirit of God is mentioned in the second verse of the, of the Bible. Now if you want to know what any of that means, I don't have time to go into it because we're trying to finish two lessons. So you guys see that I'm on my horse and I'm riding? <laughs> But we did a uh, series on the first 11 chapters of Genesis back a few years ago, and all of those series are on our website, so if you're interested in any of that, you can go back and, go back and find that. But the Holy Spirit was active in creation, second verse of the Bible. Right after, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Uh, and secondly, the Holy Spirit gave prophecies and scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 1 says, Prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the, by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, in the first part of your Bible, not only the prophets of the Old Testament were able to prophesy and receive their revelation via the ministry of the, the Holy Spirit, but thirdly, in the Old Testament, first part of your Bible, the the Holy Spirit enabled people for specific tasks. 
So this is why in the Old Testament you'll find this kind of curious thing of the Holy Spirit coming upon people and leaving people. And when you read that, it can be frightening because it can, if you're not careful, seem to indicate that you have somebody who had the Holy Spirit, was a, was a believer, a child of God, and now the Holy Spirit has completely left them. And so now what's that mean for their relationship with God? Did they lose their salvation? And you have, for example, in Psalm 51, David, after David has sinned, David is in Psalm 51, he is confessing his sin and just really pouring out his heart to God and confessing his sin. And one of the things he requests of God, David does, it says, do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. So what does that mean? To have the Holy Spirit come upon and leave, David says, do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. Well, what it means is this. In that paragraph we refer to, you see it in bold and underlined there, the theocratic anointing, the theocratic anointing. So theocratic's a you know, 25 cent term that just comes from the idea that Israel was a theocracy. So we are, you know, crassi is, comes from Latin for government. And, and democracy is government by the people. That's what democracy is. But theocracy is government by God. Because theos means God. So you have then, you have the theocratic anointing then is an anointing, a setting apart of the person who's going to lead the theocracy. And that's why now you have in 1 Samuel 16, see it there? Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So David is anointed to be the leader, the king of the theocracy. And he's given this power by the Lord to rule on the Lord's, Lord's behalf. That's not his salvation. That's his task. That's his work. And not everybody had that work. And David had it, and David knew it could be taken away. So here he is, he's the king, he commits these heinous sins, remember the sin of adultery, and then tries to cover it up, with, and he's confessing to the Lord, and he's asking the Lord to have mercy and not remove his work, not remove his position when he says, do not remove your, take your Holy Spirit from me. So it's not, I was your child and I'll no longer be your child. It was, I was your king and I'll no longer be the king of, of Israel. I had the theocratic anointing. I'm asking you not to, to remove it. Then number four here, the Holy Spirit was active in the salvation of people in the first part of the Bible. It's limited, is the Old Testament, in its discussion of the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. It also frequently uses different terminology than we have in the New Testament, but the biblical evidence indicates the Holy Spirit was involved in the lives of Old Testament believers in many of the same ways He's involved with us today. He gave people the new birth. John chapter 3, you see that cited there? Remember in John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is one of the major religious figures in all of Israel. He's part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. And in fact, at one point in that 
the dialogue, Jesus says, you are the teacher in Israel. That's what he says. You are the teacher in Israel. And yet you don't understand that you must be born again in order to enter into the kingdom. Uh, and Jesus said, the way you're born again is by the Holy, the Holy Spirit. So he expected this guy, Nicodemus, Jesus did, he expected Nicodemus, who only had the Old Testament at that time, to understand that you have to be born of the Spirit in order to enter into the kingdom of, of heaven. So the Holy Spirit, from all time, if anyone is born again, it's the Holy Spirit who gives them that new birth. He indwelt believers like He does today. He provided spiritual instruction and guidance like He does today. So the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was there, and then you have the work of the Holy Spirit coming forward in time now to when Christ is born and, and ministers. Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You all remember that uh, Jesus was miraculously conceived. We talk about, a lot of times, the virgin birth of Christ, which is true. Mary was a virgin at the time Jesus was born. But actually, more important is that she was a virgin at the time he was conceived. It's actually the virgin conception piece that's really important because that miraculous conception is what kept a sin nature from being passed on to, to Jesus. We talked about this in one of the lessons on the doctrine of Christ several weeks ago, that that virgin conception kept a sin nature from being passed on. I said at the time, I remind you, because I can see some of the ladies are a little smug about this, that uh, you think that that means that the sin nature must come through the man. And if we could just eliminate the man from the process, we wouldn't have, <laughs> we wouldn't have this sin nature problem. No, it's not that it comes from the man or the woman, but rather it comes by the union of the man and the woman. And if you break that up miraculously, like God did, with a Holy Spirit conception, then you don't have the uh, passing on of the, the sin nature. So Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He, Christ, was like David, King David, anointed by the Holy Spirit. That's why this, this scene you know, where Jesus has the Holy Spirit come upon Him uh, in the form of a dove, you guys remember that, and then the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the anointing, the theocratic anointing of Jesus as God's King. God's Davidic king, I might add, because David, King David, was told, was given a covenant by God, going all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there is going to be on your throne, David, there is going to be a king forever. And yet, going forward from David, you know, David's son Solomon uh, is on the throne, but then uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, if you don't know who these people are, take how to get the most out of your Bible, and I go through the history. <laughs> but then you have the kingdom of Israel is divided, and then uh, the northern kingdom is taken captive. Later, the southern kingdom is taken captive, and Israel is obliterated for centuries as a nation. And so where's this king? Well, now the king comes, and the king is anointed. And you see here what we say at the bottom of page 151, the Holy Spirit came upon Christ at His baptism. This was the continuation of the theocratic anointing. He had emptied Himself, laying aside the prerogatives of deity, that is, of being God, when He became a man. The anointing of the Holy Spirit was a divine enablement to function as the perfect prophet, priest, and, and king. 
And then page 152, Christ ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was, was with him. So you have the work of the Holy Spirit in conceiving um, in, in the uh, Old Testament, in the life of Christ, and then see on page 152 the work of the Holy Spirit in the world at large. So Old Testament life of Christ, but then in the world in general. And here's what the Bible teaches the Holy Spirit does. He applies common grace. Now, if you, again, it's taxing your memory, I know, but if you want to go back to lesson four, in lesson four, we talk about the character qualities of God that are under the category of His goodness. Remember, we had those two categories of greatness and goodness. And under His goodness, we focused in on just three examples of character qualities of His goodness those of His love, His righteousness, and His grace. And when we talked about His grace, we talked about common grace there. Common grace versus special grace. Most of the time when we sing of amazing grace, when we talk about grace with regard to our salvation, we're talking about the special grace that God gives to those that He calls as His own in salvation. But there is this thing called common grace. So instead of grace that's given to specific people, just some people, there's a grace that's given to all people, common. And it's the Holy Spirit who brings about part of this common grace by restraining the effects of evil in the world. And this is a, this is a beautiful thing, <laughs> because if we don't have the restraint of the Holy Spirit on evil in the world, then, you know, you look over in the Ukraine and you see depraved people doing depraved things. And you ain't seen nothing yet, okay? One. I mean, I don't, I don't, a lot, I, I don't claim to know, obviously, firsthand what's happening there. But you've got bombing happening. You've got <clears throat> today a report of a bomb on a hospital, a maternity hospital. It's, you know, it's just awful, right? And that's, the way war goes, in, and especially if there are no holds barred for a guy like a Putin. So that's bad enough. You see sinfulness, you see depravity in kind of a raw form. And you look historically at the way wars have gone and how cruel some of the people were in these wars. You know, the Ninevites that Jonah didn't want to go and <laughs> preach to. I mean, they were, I read when I, did, when I did a sermon on Jonah and I read some historical commentary about the Ninevites and how cruel they were, and people were just cringing as I was reading it. You know, it's, it's that bad. Uh, worse than anything that we've seen in recent memory. Um, but when the restraints on evil are removed and you have someone in power who can do what they want, then you see that how evil the hearts of people can be. But the Holy Spirit restrains that in the world. This is one of the reasons that uh, before we started tonight, Gordon mentioned that, hey, there, you know, there's some people who don't believe in a rapture of the church, a preacher. Well, this is one of the reasons that I do, <laughs> because I do believe that there is this time coming where there's going to be a seven-year tribulation 
that Jesus says it will be a time of trouble such as has not been seen in the history of the world. That's what Jesus says. It's going to be worse than anything that's ever happened in this period. Well, part of the reason it's going to be so bad is because the Holy Spirit's going to be removed from the world in the form of Christians, I believe, in the, in the rapture. And therefore, you don't have this common grace restraint. But the Holy Spirit does that, and it's a good thing for us because the world could be a lot worse than it is and would be without it. The Holy Spirit also convicts of sin. Jesus said on the night before He died in John 16, when He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness. So prove the world to be in the wrong. Uh, The King James and other translations say He will convict the world of sin. Prove them to be in, in the wrong. This passage is the climax, John 16, to a series of statements by Jesus concerning the Spirit's work through the apostles to produce Scripture. From this we see that conviction takes place through the the Word of God. That Jesus, uh, one of the other statements He made about the Holy Spirit convicting the world, in addition to John 16 and verse 8, is that He's going to guide the apostles into all truth, and He also said He's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I I have commanded you. So here's the work of the Holy Spirit now, not just in the Old Testament, not just in uh, the life of Christ, in the world in general, but now in the church. At this point, we can identify additional practical benefits of our union with Christ. Now remember at the beginning of this lesson, we said that the Holy Spirit is the source of all of the practical benefits that the believer has. And we had looked at three of those practical benefits in Lesson 15, those of perseverance and um, assurance and sanctification. Well, here's some additional ones in addition to those three. The Holy Spirit establishes the church through spirit baptism. So everybody who is in God's church, like we are, if you've come to Christ, then you have been baptized by the Spirit into His church. Now, spirit baptism is not water baptism. Spirit baptism is how you become uh, identified with the, the body of Christ, immersed as it were, into the body of Christ, the, the church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, you see it there, we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, that body being the body of Christ, the, the church. Now, um, uh, we'll see. We'll see if I have time at the end. There's something I want to say here. There's a dog I want to kick as I go by because there's a, there's a heresy that's taught about some of this. But if we have time at the end, I'll, uh, I'll talk about it, okay? Look at me, resisting temptation. <laughs> Yay, this is sanctification of the Holy Spirit at work in my life. Okay. <laughs> All right, the Holy Spirit establishes the church and indwells believers. And when we talk about the indwelling, you know, that word, in, dwelling in, indwell, gives the idea falsely but I understand why we get it, because the word indwell seems to suggest dwelling in. So that the Holy Spirit is like inside your body. So we get that, we get that idea. Uh, but it is, it, it's better to think of it in terms not of a spatial presence, but a relational presence. That God has a relationship with you as a believer that He doesn't have with non-believers. 
Because if you think of a spatial presence, where all is the Holy Spirit present? That would be everywhere, <laughs> right? So to say He indwells me, but, he, but He's not here, He's not there, would actually be false. The Holy Spirit, is, as God, is omnipresent. So it's not a spatial, He's inside of me, but rather it's a relational presence. God has a, that's what we mean by indwelling. But it's what the Holy Spirit does in believers. He also, top of page 153, seals believers. A seal was used in biblical times to mark ownership, to protect and to preserve something. The Bible uses that term to teach that God has given His Spirit as His mark of ownership and His guarantee that He will protect and preserve the believer. Now, how do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? How do you know that you have this, that the seal is upon you? Well, it would be because the work of the Holy Spirit is evident in your life. Things like the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, Galatians 5, 22, the, the fruit of the Spirit. And then Paul gives nine things that are characteristic of the Holy Spirit and therefore should be characteristic of those who have the Holy Spirit. So the way you know you have this seal is that the character qualities of the Holy Spirit are evident in, in your life. The Holy Spirit, fourthly, illumines the Word of God for believers. We saw this back in section number two on the doctrine of the Bible and that the Holy Spirit turns the light on in the mind of believers as, the, as we study Scripture so that we welcome, we receive the message of the Bible. It's not that an unbeliever, as I said back then, cannot understand the meaning of the Bible. They can understand the meaning. If they just put the grammar together, anybody that can do that, put the grammar together, put something in context. You can have world-class scholars write commentaries who aren't believers. I have some commentaries on my shelf that are written by unbelievers. They know the history. They know the context. They're really smart. They know the Hebrew and Greek and all of that. But if you're not a believer, you don't welcome that. You don't accept that as truth for your life. And that's what illumination is. Illumine means to turn the light on, and that only happens in believers. The Holy Spirit teaches the believer the significance of Scripture. Notice we're, we're careful to say, to avoid saying the Holy Spirit teaches the believer the meaning of Scripture. You get the meaning of Scripture simply by working on it, by studying. But the Holy Spirit illumines the mind, turns the light on so that we welcome it. This means that the Spirit causes us to accept, welcome, not merely understand. And that was, we talked about that back in Lesson 6. The Holy Spirit also sanctifies believers. Sanctify means to set apart, and it is the Holy Spirit's work in the life of God's children that causes us to be convicted of sin, causes us to be gradually and progressively less like the world and more like, more like Christ. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit enables us to serve, gives gifts of the Holy Spirit to, to everyone. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you've got a gift or gifts. You don't have to worry about trying to find yours or take a test for it or any of that. Just God has wired you in particular ways. The Holy Spirit causes you to want to use those gifts for the glory of God through His church to advance His mission. And so if you find that you're good at something and that God's given you the ability to do that, consider that your gift. <laughs> 
And if you, if you find that you're good at more than one thing, consider that you have gifts, plural, and then seek to put those into use in, in God's work. Now, bottom of page 153, we have this excursus. And why do we have an excursus? Just because when we wrote this years, 30 years ago, we just wanted to use the word excursus. We just think it's a cool word, okay? Because <laughs> nobody ever uses it, right? Well, but an excursus is kind of like we get an excursion. You say, I'm going to go on an excursion. I'm going to go on a trip, you know. Uh, and so this is taking a sort of side but related trip on this question, are miraculous signs for today? And if you read the bottom of page 153 and the top of page 154, then you see a three-point rationale for why miraculous gifts are not happening, happening today. But I want to quickly add to those three, quickly, because we are going to move on now to Lesson 18, some other things. One, if you care about this issue, if you have anybody that you know is a Pentecostal and they think miraculous gifts are for today and you want some help in answering that or just solidifying it in your mind, then I, I highly recommend the book that we have in our resource center by Sam Waldron, W-A-L-D-R-O-N, W-A-L-D-R-O-N, Sam Waldron. And the title of the book is To Be Continued, question mark, To Be Continued. And it's asking the question, do all of these miracles that were happening in the Bible, in Bible times, do those continue today? And it's, very, it's quite understandable and I think accurate, so I would recommend that for you. But I've pointed out to you in previous lessons that the apostles uh, were unique. The apostles had unique abilities. They were unique in their number. There were only 12 of them. And then when Judas hanged himself, they were just called the 11. And then they, they had to replace him in Acts chapter 1 so that it was back to 12. And why 12? Because it was, uh, it was showing a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the 12 tribes and in fact, uh, in fact, the Bible says Jesus told the apostles that you guys will judge the 12 tribes on 12 thrones. So that's why, there, that's why there are 12 of them. But notice there's only 12 of them. You don't have a bunch of them. And they were the ones who were able to write Scripture or oversee the writing of Scripture. You don't have other people who can do that. They were the ones who were able to raise people from the dead. You don't have other people who can do that. They do these miraculous signs and wonders. As we're going through the book of Acts, you see that all of these kinds of things were done at the hands of the apostles. Now, starting this Sunday in the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 8, we're going to see Stephen. Stephen's a deacon, one of those seven deacons that was chosen that we saw last week. And Stephen does miraculous signs. You say, wait a minute, this guy's not an apostle, he's a deacon. But as I will point out, here's a guy who just had hands laid on him by whom? by the apostles. So if you're going to be doing any of the apostles stuff, you're going to have to do it with apostolic authority. And these things were done either directly by the apostles or those who were under the supervision of the apostles. And when the apostles died, then that stuff's not happening. Okay? Um, the Bible sets apart by their number, by their abilities, and then just by statements of the Bible. Ephesians 2.20, that the church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and apostles. The, the, the apostles are the foundation. How, how many times do you lay a foundation? That would be once. <laughs> and the apostles lay the foundation and the church is built upon that. So they had that special commission. You get to the end of the Bible, the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, last chapter in the entire Word of God. 
and you have the New Jerusalem, and you have John seeing the dimensions of it and its walls and how high they are, and he's giving all that, and he says the city had 12 sides to the foundation on which are written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You talk about a special group of people, okay? So if you're somebody who wants to keep what the apostles did going, you're going to have to try to somehow equate people today and what they're able to do with what those guys, who they were and what they, the apostles were able to do, and that's a, a tall order. All right, page 171. Page 171 and Lesson 18. Now, Lesson 17 began the second part of Master Plan for Life, which is answering the question, why am I here? And if you look in the upper right-hand corner, it says the purpose of the church. So the first three lessons now of part two, answering that question, why am I here, are about the purpose of the church. Last week in Lesson 17, we saw God's purpose for history, all of history, and how God has so progressively made Himself known in what are called dispensations throughout, throughout history. Now, in Lesson 17, building upon what we saw last week, we're seeing that in this dispensation, at this time, God is doing His work through the body of Christ, through the, through the church. Uh, and hopefully we can get it done in 25 minutes. Let's go. Page 171, the Greek term ekklesia, or church, is used in two ways in the New Testament. That term, ecclesia, the word church, the centrality of the church in God's program is so important. And I am so absolutely convinced of the centrality and importance of it that if you ever want to break into any of my, you know, any of my accounts or any of that, if you put in the word ecclesia, <laughs> but it's not my password, okay? <laughs> so I didn't give anything completely away, but, but I often have a user ID of ecclesia. And apparently there are other people who do this because sometimes I'll put an ecclesia and they say this thing's taken. I'm like, what? <laughs> and so then I have to be ecclesia one or ecclesia two or something like that. But okay, but ecclesia. And it's primarily used to describe local assemblies of believers. Local assemblies of believers, primarily. In fact, next week's lesson, lesson 19, is all about the local assembly and what the Bible says about that. But just for now, get this that the, the uh, Greek term ekklesia is used 114 times in the New Testament, 114. Of those, 99 are of the local assembly. That's how important the local church is. Now, there are a handful of others where it's used not of the local assembly, but of the universal body of Christ. Everybody who's a believer now anywhere in the world, everybody who's been a believer since the church was established at the day of Pentecost and for 2,000 years since, since then, the Bible uses the term church in some context to refer to that, but 85% of the time it's referring to local assemblies. It's also used in a collective sense to describe all believers in this age. In this age would mean from Pentecost until, yes, the rapture, until the, until the end. Okay? And everybody who's a believer of, and I might note, I think this is one of the more, most important reasons it's good to know that there is this thing called the Body of Christ, capital B, that is comprised of every believer everywhere in God's world and, and every believer that's ever been 
since the church was established 2,000 years ago. Here's why that's important. One reason that's very important, and that is that is not confined to a, a denomination. The body of Christ, capital B, is not a particular denomination. So I personally believe that Baptist teaching best captures what the New Testament teaches about the most important issues. And that's why I'm a Baptist, and that's why our church is a Baptist church. Uh, but I don't believe that only Baptists go to heaven. Uh, I've got terrific Presbyterian friends. I'm getting ready to, in May, I, I'm told, I'm pretty sure, I'm graduating in May <laughs> from a Presbyterian seminary in Philadelphia, okay? And great brothers there. So you don't have to be a Baptist, you know. So I tell people, I don't think you have to be Baptist to go to heaven. But I also add, why take a chance? <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, so we get to heaven, it's going to be all denominations, that's the body of Christ, and I think that's something important for us to keep in mind because we do have differences, but if we believe who Christ is, we believe what Christ has done, then we're brothers and sisters in, in the Lord. My dad was a Pentecostal. My dad, I believe, is in heaven. I look forward to seeing my dad. If my dad were alive today, we would disagree about what I said about the apostles and miracles and all of that stuff. Okay? All right. So it describes all believers in this age from Pentecost uh, up to the present and to the end at the rapture. The common phrase for the second use of the term is the body of Christ. The body of Christ can be understood as an organism, a living entity, while the local assembly can be understood as an organization. It should be noted the body of Christ should always be manifested through these local assemblies. If somebody's part of the body of Christ, they should also be part of a local assembly. That's what we're saying. And we'll underscore that next, next week. The body of Christ may be defined as the sum of all believers in this dispensation, which has been equipped to carry out the objectives of the Great Commission for the glory of God. So we'll see when it starts and ends, but I've already given it away. It started at Pentecost. It ends at the, at the rapture. So in this lesson, let's look at the time, the scope, and the function. The time of the body of Christ, it's distinctive to this dispensation. One approach to biblical interpretation sees little or no difference between Israel and the church. Instead, Israel is viewed as the church in the Old Testament, and the church is often called the new, uh, the new Israel. So this is why, remember I said my Presbyterian friends and you know, the Presbyterian um, seminary in, in Philadelphia, Westminster Seminary, if anybody's interested. Uh, but our Presbyterian friends, I mean, one of the differences is that they baptize infants. Well, where do they get the idea of baptizing infants? One of, the, one of the key ways that they get this idea of baptizing infants is because of this, uh, this, this correlation that they have between Israel and the church. Because remember that people were brought into the covenant community in the first part of the Bible, in the Old Testament, through circumcision as an infant. And so circumcision and baptism are equated. Circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New Testament. You say, really? Do they really do that? Okay. R.C. Sproul? You mentioned R.C. Sproul earlier before we started. Presbyterian guys with the Lord now. Great author, great theologian. I've been helped by his stuff. We've got a lot of his books. I recommend. I rec recommend them. I don't recommend him on baptism, okay? Because <laughs> he's got 
So he put together this thing that was originally called the Geneva Study Bible. Then they changed it to the Reformation Study Bible. Maybe you've seen the Reformation Study Bible. If you have a copy of the Reformation Study Bible, go to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17 in the Reformation Study Bible. If you open it up, this is R.C. Sproul's Study Bible, right? If you open it up, Genesis 17 now, he's got a whole, he's got a whole page dealing with baptism. In Genesis 17. Now, let me tell you how many people were baptized in the book of Genesis. That would be zero. (laughs) So how does he start talking about baptism in Genesis 17? Because that's where Abraham was circumcised. He's equating circumcision with baptism. So lest you think I make this up, take a look in his study Bible, and there you will see it. So I love my Presbyterian brothers, but they got the baptism thing wrong. You still get to heaven getting baptism wrong. That's the, good, that's the good news. So the church is distinct from Israel because of its origin. The origin of Israel is different than the origin of the church. The nation of Israel began early in the biblical record when the Lord singled out Abram, later Abraham, and his descendants to bestow his favor upon him. God's call of Abram established the racial identity of Israel. The racial identity. Who comprises it? Jews, right? All right. And so, is there a racial identity to the church? The answer to that would be no. Those are different, right? All races are part of the same body in in the church. The Lord later organized the descendants into a nation that took place at Mount Sinai in the giving of the law. It was the law that established the political identity of, of Israel, the political identity. So here in Israel, you've got a nation, a nation with a racial identity and also a political identity, and the church has neither of those. Now, you've got a lot of people who don't get that. And so they do things like they quote 2 Chronicles 7.14, you know, that says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and call out to me, I will hear and I will heal their land. You guys have heard, heard that, right? And, and so if we do that, God will bring America back to himself. The problem is America is not Israel. And 2 Corinthians 7.14 is about Israel. And when God says there, I will heal their land, remember the land was part of what was promised to Abraham. And in fact, the land is something they're going to get in the future in the kingdom. We'll see that in our final lesson, or one of our second to the final lesson in Master Plan for Life. So Israel's different from the church in its origin. And also, uh, you can see the contrast with the origin of the church. As noted in the last lesson, bottom of page 171, the church began on the day of Pentecost. Now, how do we know the church began on the day of Pentecost? Stay with me. I said, we, we saw that the Holy Spirit forms the church by baptizing people into it. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what places you in the body of Christ. Now the question then is, when did the baptism of the Holy Spirit first happen? And you have no reference in the Old Testament to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. None. And Jesus, in fact, said that just before He ascended to the Father, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was something that was going to happen in a few days. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. 
Jesus said this, Acts 1.5, he says to the apostles before he ascends to the Father, he says, John baptized with water, John the Baptist baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So this baptism of the Holy Spirit is going to happen in a few days. So go and wait in Jerusalem, and that's what they do. And then the day of Pentecost, what happens? They're baptized with, with the Spirit. So that's the beginning then of this body, the church, that's formed by the baptism of the Spirit. It happens on the day of, of Pentecost. It's not in the Old Testament. And the church is distinct not only from Israel in its origin, but also in its mission. Here's the mission of Israel. God intended for Israel to minister to the world from the context of her national identity. She was to be a nation shining to the nations. The church is not a nation. And if you can get that right, by the way, you'll, you'll stop, we'll stop getting messed up politically as Christians. A lot of Christians are messed up politically. They think that we got to establish a Christian nation. God has not called Christians to establish a Christian nation. Would I be thrilled if most of the people, if all the people in America became Christians? Of course. That's what we're trying to do. Now, you, now you'll have the closest thing you'll ever have to a Christian nation if people get converted and they become Christians. That's how you do it. You don't do it through political power because we're not a political entity, and that's not our mission. The mission of Israel was a national mission. But of the church, what is it? Number two here. The mission of the church is summarized in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. This passage is going to be discussed in greater detail in future lessons, but it should be noted now that the objective of, objectives of the church are spiritual in nature and are, ten, are intended to be carried out in a personal manner. C, the church is distinct from Israel, not only in its origin and mission, but also in its destiny. What's the destiny of Israel? It's destined to be the head of the nations on earth during the future kingdom. You see passages for that, top of page 173. The destiny of the church, the church will be present as well in the future kingdom, but have a different function than Israel. The church is destined to be joined with Christ as his bride and to reign with him in the kingdom as his co-regent. All right, so that is the origin of the body of Christ, the time of the body of Christ. It is distinctive to now. It's not Israel. It's not in the Old Testament to this dispensation. Here's the scope of the body of Christ. Who all does it include? Well, it's universal for everybody who belongs to Christ. It's sometimes called the universal or invisible church. Now, why would it be called invisible? Well, because if it's comprised of everybody who's a Christian in the world then you're not going to be able to see it together at any given time, right? And it's not just everybody who's a Christian in the world at this time, but everybody who's ever been a Christian from the time of Pentecost all the way to the rapture. So you're never going to see that in one place until we all get to heaven. That's why it's called universal or invisible. The local church is called local or visible. You can, you can see that body gathered together. Middle of page 173, the universal nature of the body of Christ not only can be seen in several contexts where ecclesia is used, but also in other aspects of the body. It's universal because of its composition. So you've got a number of things the Bible says here about the body of Christ, that it's a body of which Christ is the, the head. And so, you know, is Christ just the head of one part? That's impossible to, to contemplate, right? If you have the head, then everything that is the body is under it. 
And so that's why it's universal if he's the, if he's the head. Further, it's a building of which Christ is the, the cornerstone. How many cornerstones do you have? You've got a cornerstone for the building, which is comprised of all of the believers that are built upon that foundation. The church is the bride of whom Christ is the bridegroom. Again, how many brides does the bridegroom have? He has one. It's every Christian that is part of his, his bride. The Bible speaks of him being the shepherd and the church being the flock, him being the vine, the church being the, the branches. So all of everybody who belongs to Christ is part of all of these things that Christ is the head of. He's the head of the body, he's the cornerstone of the building, bridegroom of the bride, shepherd of the flock, vine of the, the branches. It's also universal because of its objectives. The objectives of the church are given in the Great Commission that we have listed there in Matthew chapter 28. That commission has three objectives, to evangelize, to pursue spiritual growth, and to seek worldwide expansion, go to all nations. Now that third objective highlights the universal nature of the objectives of the church. It implies a connectedness between all those who work together to carry out the Great Commission. Now you guys see that? Sorry, we're having to go fast, but, you know, we've got people right now serving overseas. And we're doing our bit here in our corner of God's world in Trenton. But we're doing the same thing that people are doing in Cambodia and Uzbekistan and Vietnam. Same thing. Everybody who is carrying out the Great Commission is doing what we're doing here. So there's a connectedness to that because we are all part of the, the body of Christ. And Jesus said, you guys are going to go and you're going to do this to all nations. Doesn't matter where you are, you're connected in that you're all doing the same work that I gave you, gave you to do. Now, each of these three objectives of evangelism, of spiritual growth and expansion, there's a, there's a lesson devoted to each of those, a separate lesson moving forward, okay? And then lastly, the function of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is equipped for ministry. How so? Well, we're given the message of Christ. The church is entrusted with the message of Christ and so equipped to carry out the work that He's given us. The risen Christ promised the apostles the power to accomplish the task of the Great Commission. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, we're in the book of Acts. That's Acts 1, right? Sunday we were in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. We're going to be picking up at Acts chapter 6 and verse 8 this Sunday. And we are now finally getting to the point in the progress of the book of Acts where you start to move out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. The next few chapters are going to document that because Jesus said that's what's going to happen. To this point, they've always... And what we've seen in the book of Acts, they've been in Jerusalem alone. Now it's going to start to, to move out. And then it's going to move out from there, further yet, all the way to the capital of the empire by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts in Rome. Pa top of page 175, we often associate the promised power of the Holy Spirit that was given on the day of Pentecost with strictly a mysterious, mystical kind of energy. But the Bible teaches that the very message the Holy Spirit gave is power. And guys and gals, I can't underscore that enough. 
The gospel message is powerful. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I didn't make that up. That's Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile. By the way, how, how many people does that include, Jew and Gentile? That would be everybody from whatever group. Those two groups comprise everybody. And anybody within those two groups who believes the gospel is the power of God for salvation for them. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And, and the, the Holy Spirit has given us this, this message. Remember, it was the Holy Spirit who, God, who, who, who inspired men in order to produce God's message in the Bible. And so we have the gospel message from the Holy Spirit in Scripture, and it is powerful. And then lastly, the church is equipped for ministry because of its message, but also because of its membership. That means because of you all, me, you. The church is equipped for ministry because of us. Wow. Just sit back and contemplate that for a minute that I, you, are part of the power of God in carrying out His work in the world through its membership. God in His sovereign plan has established a body of believers, each one of whom has individual abilities and strengths. In this way, each member of the body of Christ complements the other members and therefore the body functions together efficiently. And you see that in the gift lists that are given in the New Testament. You have four of them. One is in Romans chapter 12, you see it there. Another in 1 Peter chapter 4. The other two are in Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You have four of these gift lists. None of the gift lists are the same. And so don't, ever, don't bother trying to put together a list of the gifts and then trying to find yours, because the Bible doesn't give you an exhaustive list. The Bible simply gives you a representative list to say God's given all kinds of abilities to His people. And those abilities are to be used for Him in the mission of His church. So note, it's important to remember that the function of these various members is useful only through the context of the local church. So it's going to do nobody any good, and it's not going to do anything to carry out the mission of Christ if you simply were to say, hey, I'm a member of the universal body, and I'm kind of a freelancer for Jesus. I'm sort of a con consultant. I'm just sort of a contractor out there. And you've got lots of people who sort of do it this way. But the way this all manifests itself, this is all true about the body of Christ and everybody in it, but the way it actually shows up, practically speaking, is that those people assemble in local churches. And then in local churches, we together carry this out, the objectives of the Great Commission. And you've just got lots of people who have misunderstandings about this, people who say, well, I don't believe in church membership, for example. Why do I have to be a member of a church? And one of the reasons you have to be a member of the church is because there are just too many commands in the New Testament that cannot be obeyed apart from being a member of a, of a church. For example, take the one another commands. There are about 60 of them in the New Testament. How do you carry out the one another commands to accept one another, to prefer one another, to serve one another? All the one another stuff assumes that we are together in assembly. 
How do you obey the command to not give up, forsake the assembling of yourselves together? The Bible says to do that. You do that in the local assembly. But rather, it says, instead we should, this is Hebrews 10, verse 25, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, that says, instead we should encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So let's assemble together regularly. So this idea that I'm a member of the universal church, that's good enough. No, God says you're to, everybody who's part of my body is to assemble in a local body, the local church. So here's the summary. The body of Christ is the sum of all believers in this dispensation, has been equipped to carry out the objectives of the Great Commission for the glory of God. Anyone have the time? Okay. All right. That would be two lessons. I'm out of breath. <laughs> I need uh, CPR. <laughs> All right. Lesson 19 next week. One lesson per week going forward. Thank you, guys.